Hello and welcome to Cage Club. Two fans, 74 movies, one cage. Today's movie is Con Air from 1997, the second of Cage's three big action movies. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. And with us today, we have another guest, Mike Milnes, who Mike and I both went to school with. So we have a couple Mikes here today. So Mike, welcome to the podcast. Hi, guys. I think the answer might be obvious. Why did you want to do Con Air? Where do I start? I guess uh, this one goes back to when I was a kid, because I remember my dad saying to me that Nick Cage was trying to be the next action hero. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, what? What are you talking about, Nicolas Cage? You know, because it was the mid-90s. What, what was Schwarzenegger and Stallone doing at that point? Nothing, really. I mean, nothing really. No, probably a right. or something like that. And I don't know what Stallone was doing. He was the beginning of this next generation of action heroes. And even though he didn't go much further than this, this is such a huge movie for him to do. Like, of course people would think he was an action hero after watching him in this movie. It's awesome in every way. It really is. And I'm a big fan of cheesy movies, so this one is right up there. I guess it's sort of important to distinguish between, like, bad movies and, like, bad movies. Like, we've seen some bad movies on this podcast. (laughs) But this one, I don't think this is bad. I mean, it's not necessarily... I mean, sort of the same things that we were talking about for The Rock apply here, right? It's not necessarily 100% believable. It's over the top. It's a little bit crazy. It's not really grounded in reality, but it all comes together within the logic of this world, and it all makes sense, and it's all just like a delight to watch. Oh, yeah. I always felt like it was a very well-done movie. Really well-made, and it looks great. Yeah, this is certainly, you know, quality-wise, this is this is leaps and bounds <laughs> above a lot of Cage films. You know, it's certainly no time to kill that is a a far worse film than this but i hear what you're saying it adheres to the tropes of action movie you know this is just smack dab in the center of that genre right everything from die hard to last boy scout to lethal weapon it almost all culminates here in a in a weird way it's a star-studded ensemble like how many action films really are kind of like that not many and also it's it's like a villain film as well you know what i would imagine like a sinister six movie might almost be like in a way Um, oh yeah so it's really weird how Cage is, like, the only good guy. <laughs> I don't know. It's strange. Like, he's in it less than I was expecting. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Yeah. To be the star, to be the main action guy, like, he's almost overshadowed. And he's top build too. I mean, he's number one on the call sheet. And you're right. Like, it's kind of John Malkovich's movie for the most part, and also sort of John Cusack. Like, it's kind of this triumvirate of Cage, Cusack, and Malkovich that make up the movie. Yeah, I don't know if I would have called it a Nick Cage movie. There's so many big names. It's weird because, you know, we'll get into the plot and everything, but it's certainly his journey. It just feels like he gets wrapped up in this, I don't know, almost like he steps into this other world (laughs) in a way on his way home. You know, like he stumbles off the path and, you know, I don't know. It's weird. It starts as his movie and it just sort of, he becomes like a a passenger, right, (laughs) on this other story. So a little groundwork. Movie was directed by Simon West who will return to direct Cage much later in his career when he directs Stolen, which I think comes out in 2012. It was written by Scott Rosenberg, who will also write Gone in 60 Seconds. It's produced by Jerry Bruckheimer, who just produced The Rock. 
And also, actually, going back to screenwriting, it was touched up by that guy, Jonathan Hensley, who Bruckheimer brought on board to touch up The Rock, too. In addition to the actors, which we'll get into when we get to them in the movie, there's a lot of, like, cage connections behind the scenes and in front of the camera. Everything's sort of coming together into the, in terms of this big blockbuster 90s action movie. It's weird that we mentioned how this movie looks a lot like The Rock, you know, and it almost feels like a companion piece in a lot of ways. I don't know. It's just it's got the same sort of feel and the vibe and the essence. And I almost wonder if that is the Bruckheimer touch, you know, because we have a different director, yet it almost yeah. feels like the same director, you know, like <laughs> it almost feels like Bruckheimer's the guy, not Michael Bay, not Simon West. Like it's it's Bruckheimer who's sort of got the look, you know, the, he brings the cool gloss he makes sure like the action's readable he makes sure the shots are what we need and i don't know like watching this movie it, it made me just just wonder like how much influence he really did have i definitely think that's a good point face off definitely feels like a john woo movie right like it definitely feels like a different kind of breed but these two do feel very sort of similar and i mean i guess that's also maybe a critique or a commentary on the time like they're they're made a year apart this is how action movies were made at the time, but I also do think that what you're saying is true. It holds a lot of water. It is sort of the Bruckheimer effect. It feels like his movie. It's got that feel to it, the whole, the, the whole thing. What I like about it, in difference to The the Rock, is that uh, Cage plays such a different character here. Yeah. Where in The Rock, that's a, you could call that an action movie, absolutely, but he wasn't the, star, the action star. He's the star in this movie. He's the guy. He beats the shit out of these guys at the beginning of this movie. <laughs> I rewound that scene. Watching him in other movies, he's had to have trained hard for this. You're definitely right. Like, in The Rock, he's playing more of, like, the guy he played in Honeymoon in Vegas. <laughs> you know, like, this nervous guy. And in here, you're right, he's like the army ranger. He's the marine, or, you know, he's the yeah. stoic badass who's already you know fully formed and you know ready yeah. to go and those are definitely the distinct difference you know with his character for sure absolutely you know, larson made a good point last movie when he was talking about the rock that john cusack in con air is kind of playing the nicholas cage role in the rock which is true like they're both normally behind the desk sort of have to get their hands a little dirtier than they normally would but it's you're right like it is sort of it's it's a different kind of role than from the rock and he's sort of he's more just in it in this movie yeah and like mike said he's got the moves like he pulls out like the roundhouse kicks and stuff like that and like the (laughs) the kung fu the karate and even later on like those are his moves you know he will come back to the roundhouse kicks and stuff and like it's his signature and the dude is so tall and stuff like his legs get that reach i was like oh my god like why would you mess with them he he looks like a monster at the beginning of this movie too (laughs) he's just he's jacked again like he was in kiss of death you know like he's definitely showing his strength here speaking of his physique during setups nicholas cage would lift weights off camera to maintain the physique he had attained for the film it's not only that he just like looks jacked for this movie like he was actively on set ensuring that he remained jacked it's very evident that he is like committed to this role and committed to this physical demeanor this is kind of the ultimate cage movie in terms of cage connections the movie starts off and he is returning home from his time as an army ranger and we've seen him in a lot of you know different army and marines and all that sort of different stuff vietnam mentioned early in the movie again really early in the movie he 
beats a guy to death for the third time <laughs> the with third his bare hands. third time in his career. Oh, he beats yeah. a guy to death with his bare hands. And he totally and could have avoided it, too. They say, like, later in the movie, right? He was just protecting his, his girl, sort of, right? Yeah, like, there's, he just... there's a moment with that scene we have, we'll talk about, but he kind of gets screwed into his sentence a little bit, you know? Like, there was no evidence, the knife was missing, and all that, you know, I don't know. I feel with that knife, he might have gotten off a little bit better. So one thing that's sort of interesting to point out about this scene is that the movie basically starts with kind of like a little, not montage, but set to this song, How Do I Live? Which is like a massive, massive hit. I found out that it was written for this movie, which is crazy. And interestingly enough, it was nominated for an Oscar for Best Original Song, and it was nominated for a Razzie for Worst Original Song. Sort of, you know, explains or describes the relationship between Cage, who plays Cameron Poe, and his wife. How do they live without the other one there? Like, this is sort of a action movie version of Wild at Heart, right? Like, he beats a man to death protecting his girl, and the mm-hmm. girl that he is destined to be with forever. Yeah, and even much like that movie, he meets his kid for the first time right after coming out of prison there's a lot of parallels to that they take the whole movie this movie takes like five minutes to cover like the course of eight years worth of stuff going quickly back to the song though i remember this sort of being a trend during the time i remember when um, kevin costner was robin hood they had there was like a brian adams song going further back like karate kid part two i remember like a song coming out for that all these like romance songs made specifically for movies like becoming big mainstream heads it's like a thing of the past that's just like regulated to bond themes now but yeah that's a really interesting situation there like basically it's like a music video for how do i live without you this little opening part where cage comes home to meet his wife i'm in awe of how brilliant like the shorthand (laughs) is you know just for storytelling like i said like they take like five minutes to tell what most movies would take like an hour and a half you know this would be a whole other movie to me where this guy comes home to his little town and like has to deal with you know the locals harassing like him as a veteran and stuff and this fight is insane it's in the rain but they're next to an oil refinery so there's fire and water going on it's like very crazy um, also in the scene worth pointing out there's a red car it's not a red sports car it's like a red muscle car but it's kind of close that's the thing Mike if you see like a red car it's kind of been like a warning in Nick Cage movies like <laughs> a red car will sort of show up I mean maybe it's just like our imaginations but if a red car shows up like it's not a good sign most of the time but you're right like you you sort of made this reference earlier right he sort of has a little bit of bad luck that they sort of jump him and she goes inside to call the cops not he doesn't intentionally but he beats the guy to death with his bare hands he kills the guy he gets arrested his lawyer says hey if you plead guilty like you'll only have to serve a year you know if you don't plead guilty if they just like if you go to trial you might see 10 years in jail And so it's sort of some bum lawyer advice, but, like, this is sort of what sets us on this path for this entire movie. I guess that's bum advice. What I like about this part and this movie in general is that it wants to get to the point. It wants to get to, like, the action, to the bad guys, and to the interesting stuff. Who really cares why he goes to jail and what happens in between, really? The fact that he gets this lawyer, I guess, maybe a public defender? That there's no, like, military attorney? Yeah, that's what I was thinking, too. And the judge, right? The judge is like, you were trained by the military, so you're considered a lethal weapon, right? Like, your hands are basically, like, knives or like guns like you know <laughs> yeah, you are the same thing. 
and so he's like, because of that, like, I'm kind of going to throw the book at you, right? He, like, gives him seven years or something. And and I'm thinking, like, Judge, like, I think you got it all wrong. Like, this guy is a military vet. Like, he fought for our country. Like, if anything, shouldn't he get, like, some kind of preferential treatment or, like, cut him some slack because he's been programmed by the government to murder people in self-defense? How far did they look into this case, too? Yeah, all these other these details, but then nobody testifies that they were being harassed by these guys earlier in the night, and they were clearly instigated. And yeah, maybe... the guys that survived, right? That are in traction. Like we don't have a statement from them or anything. <laughs> That's why I think. Like I don't know if he necessarily gets bum advice, but it seems like the lawyer's not necessarily great at his job, right? He doesn't do the simple things of trying to get witnesses or trying to get whatever. And Cage gets locked up for 7 to 10, but that 7 to 10 year stretch takes only, like, 2 or 3 minutes in the movie, (laughs) and the time goes by, like, it sort of doesn't matter, like, it matters in his life, but not necessarily to the movie, the movie just needs him to get into jail so he can get out of jail. It's kind of like a really cool sort of time lapse, right, that they're using the letters that he's writing back and forth to his daughter who he's never met because he doesn't want her to meet him while he's in jail. They're reading letters back and forth between the two of them, talking about sort of going up and down about her first day of school and about wondering if she's ever going to meet him. And it's just kind of great. Dear Daddy, I started today at the Little Sunshine Day Care Center. My teacher is Miss Gordon. She is nice. We go to playtime and we all have to hold hands when we walk there. Dear Casey, it was so good to read your letter. I'm glad you like your teacher. We don't exactly have a playtime like you. We do go outside, though, but normally we don't hold hands. Dear Daddy, today was my first day at first grade. I didn't like it. I don't want to go back tomorrow. This boy, Scotty Dalton, has black teeth and calls me names. Mama says I have to go back. Tell her not to make me. Dear Casey, Hopefully this finds you still going to the first grade. School is very important. Your mom is right. Now don't you worry about little Scotty Dalton. Sometimes you meet people like that, but don't let them get you down. Dear Daddy, are you ever coming home? Dear Casey, of course I'm coming home. You're just a little while longer and all the things we miss doing together, you can be sure we'll do. Dear Hummingbird, break out the fine china, chill the lemonade, tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree, cause this boy's coming home to his ladies, coming home forever. I just hope I'm not a disappointment to Casey or to you. Love, Cameron. It really hammers home that he's a good guy. And he needs to get through this. It constantly reminds you that you're watching a movie where something bad is going to happen continuously. He just got home to see his wife. Then he gets arrested for murder. Spending time in jail. He's he's learning about his kid through these letters. So he's got this to, to look forward to. I'm going to be such a good guy. But... Hey, we've barely met this guy. It's only how how much time are we into this movie? Like six minutes? We see all these reasons to rehabilitate. Something's got to happen. It wouldn't be Con Air if he just got through jail. The one missed opportunity I think that they have in jail is that, like, they're showing him learning how to do things, right? Like, he's learning how to speak Spanish, and he's learning origami. But, like, it would have been kind of cool for him to learn something in jail 
that they just show that he, they show him doing while we're hearing these letters that like pays off later in the film. But we don't get that. Like we just sort of get yeah. it's just things to do while he's on screen. We just need him to be a convict so that he can get on that con air. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like they need to transform this. We need, we're getting like his arc, <laughs> like almost <laughs> right here at the start, out of the way because they need to transform him from an army ranger to a convict. So we need to right. get that done. Lickety split. I think that's their main objective with this whole like prison sequence going on here. Uh, and just going back to the passage of time, I, I just love the way they show. You're right. They should have set something up. He doesn't really use Spanish to any kind of varying degree. He doesn't use origami on anyone. But I just love how there's a riot going on one year, and he <laughs> just pulls, like, the covers of the pillow over his head, and yeah. it just gives you this sense that he's not this animal, right? Like, he can, he has self-control. He's actually a genuinely, like, nice guy, and like, all this kind of stuff. Like, he doesn't belong there. It almost seems like he always ends up in these places he just doesn't belong in. He's just got the worst right. luck. No, you're right. Like, he doesn't belong there, and the only reason reason or like what brings him through all of this is just thinking about his daughter right like after he gets released with baby o his prison mate his sole driving factor like his motivation is just to get back to his daughter like he's on the bus with the guard and some other inmates might be acting up and she's just trying to assess the situation and he's like here take a look at my daughter isn't she adorable cameron poe yes ma'am you know you're still under full restraints to your process and release from your original prison understand Yes, ma'am. As long as I make it home on time, it makes no never mind. It's my daughter's birthday. Well, congratulations. I got locked down three months before she was born. She ain't never seen me. And why not? No way was she going to meet her daddy in a prison visitor room surrounded by homemade cookies and, and love-starved murderers. No way. What you got here is a walking, talking reason to rehabilitate. That is the most ridiculous conversation I've ever heard. He just wanted to... T- oh, man, he pushes it hard. This is my daughter. And she, like, even turns to walk away. And he's like, nope, look at this. You sort of get the sense that, like, everybody he passed on the way out the prison, right? He's just showing, hey, hey, look, here's here's my daughter. Like, check her out. Isn't she cute? What I really loved was... Um, he's been like a cigar store Indian most of this movie, like, so far. Just, like, very quiet and pensive and stuff. But when he gets paroled, he, like, breaks down and hugs Baby-O and starts, like, crying and stuff. Like, that was really... I felt like that was, like, good to show, you know, because we're not going to see any of that. And that's the way getting to see his daughter makes him feel. So that's the feeling he's getting to be sort of chasing again for like the rest of the movie that's the way i was looking at it almost so i think one of the main things that this voiceover sort of establishes is nick cage's accent where he you know uses accents fairly often and it just he sounds like hi from raising arizona he does maybe it's his like older kick-ass brother or something like that they're related <laughs> that's the first thing i wrote down as soon as he opened his mouth i was like that accent where is he supposed to be from alabama he's flying back to alabama so i'm guessing he was born in alabama okay is that an alabama accent here's another little bit of trivia nicholas cage traveled to alabama to perfect his accent so i would i would take it to believe i mean we've seen him do all sorts of accents we've seen him do all sorts of things through these 29 movies so far i am trusting in his dedication as an actor that he has the alabama accent perfected I second that because I've never been down there. I don't know what an authentic accent 
from their sounds like, so I'm just going to go with what I learn in the movies, and uh, Cage hasn't let me down that much, so I'm going to buy it. I buy this accent. <laughs> I will agree. I mean, I, I bet he put the time in, but I bet even harder that no one else put the time in, so their <laughs> accents are not even close to what they should be. So. We'll say that Cage sets the bar for realism, and if they're not on his level in terms of accents, they're not as committed as he is. That's actually a good way to look at the rest of this film, right? Like, so what we've seen so far has established, like, the reality of this world, and we know how, like, fast-paced and crazy and extreme it's been, and it's only been, like, eight minutes. Yeah, I like that. Like, you know, as long as they don't go sort of too far out of the zone of what Cage is doing, I'm gonna, I'm gonna buy whatever else these other guys are gonna bring to this movie. It's at this point in the movie that we see the other thing, sort of the inciting event, right? That there's, we meet John Cusack, who is a, he's a U.S. Marshal, right? Mm -hmm. And we see the DEA agents led by Colmini, right? Yeah, they're Larkin and Malloy, is what I kept referring to them as. Larkin and Malloy. It's the bureaucracy here. And it's sort of, I mean, we've seen this kind of bickering between departments in past movies, most notably in Kiss of Death, right? Where it's just these two sides that ultimately are after the same thing, but they don't have the same way of getting there. They're going to put an undercover DEA agent on the plane so that he can sit next to this guy, Sindino, get him to confess to some crimes, because apparently when he's around prisoners, he likes to run his mouth a little bit and brag about what he's done. And so they're sending this DEA agent on the plane as a criminal to get a little bit more information from the Sindino guy. Cole Meany, or Malloy, is like dead set on giving him a gun, and Larkin, John Cusack, is like, no, 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 nobody goes on this plane with a gun. So he's like, all right, fine, no gun. But then you see him like when they're loading up the prisoners a little bit later... They put a gun on. So, like, it's like here that bureaucracy is just the downfall of society, basically, right? <laughs> yeah, there's a, this is like a big scene for exposition. This is a huge <laughs> info dump going on because not only do we learn that Nick Cage is going to get a ride. He's got parole, so he, he needs a ride back to where he was processed in Alabama. So he's going to hitch a ride on Con Air. And now Con Air is like a prison plane where it's designed to transport prisoners. But on this specific day, they're transferring like the worst of the worst from the east coast like to some new supermax prison somewhere off the grid i don't know i'm thinking it's the one from face off we're gonna see next time then we learn that there's a marshal running this whole operation but a dea agent wants to sneak one of his guys on board because one of these like worst of the worst is a cartel drug lord guy and they need to know like the whereabouts of his brother i don't know there's a lot it ultimately like doesn't really matter what this movie does really well like giving you just enough to show you like how badass these guys are and then that's it like they're just like they're taking all these different people from a whole different bunch of places and then just throwing them together on a plane it doesn't matter like who's there or why they're there because the whole plan's going to go to shit in a little bit anyway. They just want to introduce all these people and just say, there's a reason, like, just trust us, there's a reason they're all on this plane, but like, we're going to throw them all into this melting pot and just see what happens. Well, we told you today's flight would be special. That's William Bedford, a.k.a. Billy Bedlam. Mass murderer? The same. He caught his wife in bed with another man, left her alone, drove four towns over to his wife's family's house, killed her parents, her brothers, her sisters, even her dog. Scan him! And who is that good-looking brother on screen? Nathan Jones, a.k.a. Diamond Dog, former general of the Black Gorillas. He blew up a meeting of the National Rifle Association saying, and I quote, they represented the basest negativity of the white race. 
He wrote a book in prison called Reflections in a Diamond Eye. New York Times called it a wake-up call for the black community there, talking to Denzel for the movie. This one's done it all. Kidnapping, robbery, murder, extortion. Foxtrot, Charlie, secure. You are cleared to release. His name is Cyrus Grissom, a.k.a. Cyrus the Virus. 39 years old, 25 of them spent in our institutions. But he's bettered himself inside, earned two degrees, including his Juris Doctor. He also killed 11 fellow inmates, incited three riots, and escaped twice. Likes to brag that he killed more men than cancer. Okay, open wide. You get a lot of personalities right away. A lot of people establish themselves pretty quick. Dave Chappelle is in there. Nobody really knew Dave Chappelle yet. And Malkovich, you knew he was a good actor, but he was never really a bad guy. Yeah, this part with um, loading the prisoners is really cool. It's like the roll call, right? It's like we see the first set of prisoners. So we, I wrote down their names because everybody's got like a pseudonym. There's like Billy Bedlam. Then there's Ving Rames coming back from Kiss of Death, yeah. which he was in. And he plays Diamond Dog. Now, <laughs> Diamond Dog is the name of a Bowie album. Last episode on The Rock, there was someone named Major Tom. So yeah. I'm wondering if this is Bruckheimer just sneaking in his love of Bowie. Bruckheimer or maybe Hensley. like One of those two with their hands on the movie. And then Chappelle's name is Pinball Parker. They never really give his reason. Like Most of them have a reason for their like Cyrus the virus is called a virus because he's killed more people than cancer <laughs> like right that's his the reasoning but I don't know what Pinball Parker's reasoning was but I just love that everybody's got like this dossier and then we get to Cameron Poe and dude he's like oh he's a nobody you're looking who's that guy that is Cameron Poe a parolee hitching a ride home he's a nobody like, it's not like he's yeah. an army special ranger who committed manslaughter as like he's a nobody like you think like if they just knew his background that that would come in handy when the plane gets hijacked <laughs> they're just like Maybe. that's a nobody we also meet johnny 23 right danny trejo oh yeah who's been accused of raping 23 girls or convicted of raping 23 girls he's got a little rose tattoo on his arm for each of his ladies call me johnny 600 if they knew the truth and yeah, doesn't have quite the same ring to it Anyway, I despise rapists. For me, you're somewhere between a cockroach and that white stuff that accumulates at the corner of your mouth when you're really thirsty. But in your case, I'll make an exception. Everybody's just like comically larger than life. It's so perfect within the within the universe of the film. Each character is played so well. Danny Trejo is perfect for that. Actual convict too. So I mean, plays That's the right. part. Yeah. Once they load everybody on the plane, we we really quickly get a sense of what's going to happen and how it's going to happen. That Cyrus and Diamond Dog both have little needles in their hand, and they take them out, they extract them slowly and uncuff their wrists or their handcuffs. Dave Chappelle had swallowed lighter fluid in a match <laughs> and like spits it up and soaks the Indian guy and then lights him on fire. In the mayhem that that sort of creates, he goes and lets Cyrus out of his cell and then ultimately lets Diamond Dog out of his cell. And that's like the beginning of the end that all hell is already broken loose and we're like 25 minutes into this movie. Yeah, and when Cochise goes up in flames, I'm just loving it because, you know, guy on fire action movie trope. You know, he's got to be there somewhere. And I'm wondering, how are they going to set someone on fire in an airplane? And as oh, right away is how. Like, <laughs> it's like on takeoff. It was just amazing. It's so orchestrated. Like, everyone's got the pins. Everyone 
everyone's got the timing and those hand signals or whatever. Like, this seems like overtly well planned, you know, for these guys <laughs> who I don't know if they've had much contact with each other. Judging by the way they're traveling, they've all have like their own cell somewhere in solitary. It's just a, it's a great like over the top takeover. As this is all going crazy, the pilot and the co-pilot are like, "What's going on back there?" And the co-pilot goes back to check it out with the gun, and Malkovich like knocks him out and steals the gun, and then delivers the film's titular line. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. <laughs> I have the only gun on board. Welcome to Con Air. And meanwhile, throughout all this, like, Cage, like, isn't doing anything. Like, obviously he wasn't part of the plan, but he's not really trying to stop anything. He's just trying to get by, sort of fly under the radar. He's just trying to get back to Alabama to see his wife and to see his daughter. Can we just go back to this plan that the bad guys have? Sure. Because it's executed perfectly from start to finish. How did they do that? <laughs> How did they coordinate all that? I feel like where this is sort of like sliding doors, right? Where there's all these alternate realities and this is the one reality where everything went to plan. The easy answer is that this is an action movie and things just have to happen right. I mean, the gun doesn't necessarily have to come out of the cockpit. They don't need the gun to really sort of pull off the plan. They have the muscle. There aren't that many guards on the plane. They make a really clear point early in the movie, right? Like, nobody on board is carrying. They don't have to worry about guns. They just have to really sort of worry about hand-to-hand combat. And these are all, like, big dudes who are going to be able to overpower the guards, even if they're great guards. Yes, like, everything works perfectly, but it's not, like completely unrealistic. It's just that they get a little bit lucky. Once the dominoes start falling, everything falls in their favor. Yeah, I, I almost imagine like they they had like the start of a plan and then they realize like as they're going to cause chaos as long as they keep their cool and have an objective to like open those doors. Like, you know, that's what they stick to. And like they were just sort of everything else was sort of by the fly almost. I'm going with it. <laughs> that's all I can say. At this point too, we should bring up Baby O isn't really feeling too well and he's going to be major plot point here for, for Cage, at least. Yeah, Baby O's diabetic. In all this chaos that happens, all the needles get broken, and so he can't get his insulin shot, which he was due for like hours earlier, like when they're on the bus to get loaded onto the plane, he's asking for it then. And so he's really the reason that Cage, a little bit later, Cage has the opportunity to get off the plane, but he feels this prison bond to Baby O and wants to make sure that he gets taken care of because nobody else on the plane, aside from the guard who's now chained up in the cage, nobody's going to take care of Baby O, and he's just going to die if Cage gets off the plane. And now, was Baby O being transferred to the Supermax? Or I think so. I don't know. Like, he sort of feels like he's getting out. Like, they're obviously yeah. all criminals, right? But, yeah. like, they're not... Like, he he's sort of in the same cell block... Well, I don't know, because, like, no Billy way he's, like, in the same league as, like, Diamond Dog, the militant guy who wants to, like, take over, kill all the white men. He sits next to Cage, you know, who's getting out. So they obviously don't have any sense of danger from this guy. If I remember correctly, he's being transferred to another prison. The plane is making multiple stops, right? They're not all necessarily yeah. going up to this end gate, like this maximum security prison in yeah. Alabama or wherever. Because Cusack even says that 
Poe's just hitching a ride. So maybe they were meant to get off somewhere other than this maximum security, and who knows? Maybe that was the first stop. It's not like a huge issue for me because I don't have a problem with like I like the way they incorporate like Baby O and stuff. But they only really are planning to stop at Carson City. That's all they and they have like a transfer list, and he's not on it. So I don't know. The other big thing that happens at this point in the movie is that this DEA agent, this undercover DEA agent, it's sort of it's it's kind of like a cool reversal, right? Like we set him up that he's going to be there all movie and sort of figure out a way to overthrow Malkovich and, or at least get some information with Sandino. But like he gets on the plane and then in this whole ruckus pulls out his gun and is killed by Malkovich. Like they spend so much time debating, you know, how to get him on board. He's killed like w- within 10 minutes of being on screen. Like oh, it's kind man. of like a cool little reversal. He d- makes the dumbest cop move ever too. He immediately pulls his gun and he takes a hostage like who gives a shit if you killed that guy? This is Cyrus the Virus. You're going to hold another prisoner hostage? <laughs> He's just going to yeah. shoot the both of you. you know? This is when it would have been good to know that there is an army ranger sitting next to you, too. And you, you had some time to keep your cool and gain your wits about your surroundings a little before just completely, like, revealing yourself, like... Yeah, guy is an amateur DEA agent at best. But what was the benefit of no one knowing who he was? The guards couldn't know who he was. <laughs> I think they just wanted to be realistic. Was their purpose? I don't know. Like, I guess they were worried that the guards would treat him a little bit differently if they knew. Yeah, it's all just I don't, the I don't DEA's know. being dicks and like bullying their way into this U.S. Marshals jurisdiction. You know, I think that's like a lot of what it is, where it's just like, you have something we want, we have the means to do anything we need to, so we're butting in on your operation, and like, you know, they just don't care, and it's all that kind of crap. Two agents are like constantly jockeying for position of this operation yeah. throughout the whole film. Ultimately, you know, it, it is sort of the, the good agent, the likable agent that comes out on top, and he also even gets like a little bit of a screw you into Malloy a little bit later. But after this DEA agent falls, like sort of all the opposition is down like like within a couple minutes like they take out all the guards or they incapacitate all the guards they take out the co-pilot they convince the pilot that they're in charge now and there's really like no opposition right it's amazing how well their plan comes together because they're just in charge like almost immediately i was thinking like they take this plane faster than ed harris took the rock <laughs> they, they're probably more motivated being you know criminals with life sentences and things like that so they're very focused on their goal here today it's worth talking about their plan right because part of the plan like the big part of their plan was that sendino convinced at least cyrus that there's this plane in this airstrip in nevada that I'm going to be able to get us on and we're going to fly to a country with no extradition and we're just going to get out of here and it's going to be great. And so their whole plan is to basically, pardon the pun, but like fly under the radar and sort of make make it seem like everything's normal until they get to this airstrip and then at least Cyrus and Sandino and maybe Diamond Dog or whoever, they're all going to take off from there. To keep to the plan, the first thing that they have to do is land at Carson City and do this, like, inmate exchange where they get, like, six off or six on, ten off or whatever. Make it seem like the, the convicts are not flying the airplane. Yeah, and this is just where I wonder what was John Cusack, the U.S. Marshal, in charge of this flight? What was he thinking? He's like, we're going to stop <laughs> and pick up six more, like, of the world's most dangerous people because it's not packed in 
enough on this. We haven't overbooked it yet. Like Cyrus is pretty like a pretty big badass, right? There's like an even bigger like badass like that they're gonna pick up soon, which is also a returning cage connection. Three of the people who were supposed to get off were killed in the ruckus. And so they're trying to decide who's going to get off, who's going to come on. Cage and Baby-O are volunteer to get off. Oh, no, they're expecting white guys like, Baby-O, you got to stay. And so Cage is like, I'm going to stay then, too. I want to stay on. What? I changed my mind. So, Cyrus, we got a little mind changer. I got 15 years left, and I know I'd just hate myself if I thought I blew my one shot in a naked party freak and an umbrella drink. You got 15 years. Boy, a second ago, you couldn't wait to get off this plane. And it's just like one of the the many times in this movie, he has this opportunity to escape, but like he's such a good guy and so committed to Baby-O that he's willing to sacrifice his own life to save Baby-O instead of going to see his wife and daughter. He makes that choice a lot. It's like I said before, he's like the ultimate good guy. It keeps you in the movie, too. Yes, he's in the thick of things. But he chooses to be there at the beginning of the movie when his wife says to him, you remind me of that old guy. There's a definite difference between him at the beginning of the movie and him on the plane. He holds back from doing anything, slow to make moves, but he's very calm and cool about it. I was actually thinking that, too, is that he knows that he has that guy in him, right? Like, he's on this plane of convicts, and he's looking around, and he's probably saying to himself, like, this could have easily have been me if I wasn't, like, if I didn't meet that girl, if I didn't join the Rangers, you know, if I didn't meet Baby-O in prison, maybe I'd have lost it. Like, all these things are probably running through his head, and they're, they're running through my head too i'm looking around going like does he belong with these guys like is he gonna turn at some point like something you just don't know really you know and like yeah i almost wish we knew what his checkered past was uh, <laughs> to a degree but i think you're onto something there where it's just like he want he needs to do it as some kind of redemption to it he needs to show himself that like he's a good person and all that kind of right like helping yeah. other people and putting his life on the line like there's some sort of sense that he owes it to some degree even baby who he's trying to like defend or sort of protect or make sure that he lives is like hey like think of your girl like like don't care about me <laughs> yeah like, you know you're, you're trying to be a good guy here and like i understand that like you want to atone for something maybe but like there's more important things for you like like take care of yourself for the first time what the hell are you doing staying they're gagging everybody for the bus ride to the pan it'll be hours before the feds discover what happened by then you'll be dead so will she oh think of your little girl now, what would my daughter think of me if I let you like this to get disarmed and die? You keep acting like you're still a ranger. We're all going to be in trouble. You're not that guy anymore. You're a convict. You can tell that he does think about his choices, and he thinks about them real hard, but you can also tell that uh, which way he's leaning. As soon as this problem of, oh, my friend's in trouble, right away you go, oh, he's going to stay. It, it fits the whole time. It fits. Every time he makes this choice, it works. There's this kind of cool moment where they take over the plane, and Johnny 23 is going to go rape the female guard. Poe is like, this ain't happening, right? And he kind of diffuses the whole thing and, like, ingrates himself with Cyrus through that. I can't allow that. You know what I am. Ugly all day. This ain't happening. Not here. Not now. What's happening? Hey! Relax. He's right. Not here. Not now. Do you fly, Johnny? No. You keep that in mind when you look at her, because if your dick jumps out of your pants, 
you jump out of this plane. So it's weird, like, even amongst these thieves, like, he's, like, forming allegiances and alliances, and, you know, he's reading the code of honor between them. Like, I don't know, like, he can tell by the way they think that he knows, like, not everybody's down with this rapist. But you hear it in real life, and it's also true within the, the, the confines of this movie, that there's sort of like a hierarchy in prison, right? Like, you know, rapists and child molesters are at the bottom rung. That's why Johnny 23, he has, like, this alpha dog personality, but, like, Malkovich is like, no, like, let's let's calm down a little bit. Like, you're not in the right here. Whatever Malkovich, you know, murderer, I guess, is kind of, like, respected in prison? He's definitely some kind of, like, Lex Luthor-esque mastermind that <laughs> is, like, very well known in this, you know, film universe. That Because, like, everyone just, like, knows who he is, right? Like, even when he walks on the plane, like, Baby-O knows who he is, and they're not even in the same jail. And so it's at this point where they find out that there's like a little soft wall in Cyrus's cell that he's got all these plans for the plane that they're going to have. He not only has that, but he's got like a little homemade bomb so that when they find, when they inevitably find his secret stash, they're not going to be able to do anything about it because it's just going to self-destruct. One of the yeah. things that you see in there is the Anarchist Cookbook. Yes. Mike, I think you probably remember. Yes. Uh, back in the <laughs> 90s, that was a big deal. Internet was still kind of new. One of the things that you were able to download or look up or whatever was this anarchist cookbook give you recipes and how to make homemade explosives <laughs> it was now, very strange because it almost felt to a degree like a sarcastic like parody book almost like the zombie survival guide but it yeah. had like actual recipes in it and you yeah. could find it on the shelf at a store somewhere what I love about Cyrus's little, like, stash here is he laid it out so that by the time you figured out what he was doing, then you would find the bomb. So yeah. it was like the equivalent of revealing your master plan right before killing you without even being there. What I also like about the, the, little, the way that he has a bomb, like, it's in, like, a little lunchbox, right? And in the last movie, in The Rock, there was a bomb in a baby doll. Like, these two, <laughs> these two completely, like, harmless, you know... Childish kind of... Exactly. They're both just holding, like, this dangerous, like, bomb that's threatening to blow up our main characters, right? Like, Cage in the Rock and John Cusack here. They're, like, evil masqueraded in this, like, gentle little delicate whatever. And this is sort of all being cross-cut with landing at Carson City for the prisoner exchange. I guess the main guy they want from this is the cartel guy, right? Francisco is going to be here. This really motivates Cusack to, like... He's like, okay, now I know that they have a plan. Like, we're going to find out. He, they, oh, he finds the letter, right? And he finds the Last Supper. <laughs> the and codex. he finds out that they're going to land at Carson City. And so he, this is sort of like him, like a little bit like national treasure, like trying to find the clues, trying to get ahead of the plan, trying to figure out where they're going. And he figures it out, but, like, it's just too late. And so they, they, you're right. Like, they cut to Carson City. They're picking up Sindino. They pick up Sally Can't Dance. They pick up, they might pick up Swamp Thing. Yeah, they pick up Swamp Thing, and he's the new pilot. Yeah, because the pilot they put off, like, he's one of the white guys that they, they need to make the exchange that, you know, again, like, just crazy coordination that Malkovich not only is able to, you know, break out of his cell, but coordinate from another prison in another state <laughs> this other guy that they're going to pick up who knows how to fly a plane. Like, it's just crazy, but it's also perfect. That's what's amazing, too. Like, Swamp Thing, like, jumps on the plane and is like, yup, it's been taken over. Like, plans are, plans <laughs> in motion, you know, where's the cockpit? 
he goes into the cockpit and he takes out the transponder, and Dave Chappelle takes the transponder and brings in this little mom-and-pop tour of the Grand Canyon airline sort of thing, like this like little like prop plane that you just like you pay like you know a couple hundred dollars and they'll take you over an aerial view of the Grand Canyon, and he tucks the transponder in there so that Cusack can't track it, and he almost misses the plane because this guy who's been locked up, he's, he's more concerned with, like, you know, flirting with this girl. Like, it's just so great, this, like, little Chappelle moment, and from what I read, he apparently improvised most or all of his lines. Like, he's just so good in this scene, and there's just, like, so many moving parts, and he's just doing his one thing to get Con Air where it needs to be. Yeah, this scene's pretty funny because you don't really we don't really get a lot of like interaction between prisoners and civilians in this movie, you know? And this is like one of the only like two or three times where a prisoner is like run into this person who's like got no clue what the hell is going on like for real. <laughs> yeah. Like I thought that was really a nice little moment of levity. One of the other times that like you really have an interaction between a criminal and like an, a normal person is later in the movie and it's terrifying and so scary and that's with garland green and that little girl and garland green played by steve buscemi reprising his cage club role from zondali he's like this most feared most terrifying like most pure evil what does he do he like kills and eats people he's basically like hannibal lecter like they wheel him out of his own truck and he's bound and gagged with like this bondage mask on and he's got a straight jacket and they're wheeling him into the plane and everything like that and i think he's referred to as the marietta mangler harassed in a cartoon shit that's garland green man marietta mangler that skinny little man butchers 30-something people up and down the eastern seaboard. They say the way he killed those people makes the Manson family look like the Partridge family. Well, he's on the right flight. Like, I love that it's Buscemi because he is the complete opposite of what you would imagine to be, like, in a sense. You know, like, he's this this small, frail guy, but he's got, like, this larger-than-life, murderous reputation. Yeah, like, all these guys who were on the plane, like, you know, you would believe that Malkovich or Ving Rhames or even, like, you know, MC Gamey, who plays Swamp Thing, like, these are all the guys who are, like, physically overpowering and intimidating and they could easily kill a whole bunch of people. But Buscemi, like, you know that he's, like, the smartest guy on that plane because he figured out a way to sort of smart his way into 30 kills. The cops start to show up, right? Like, Cusack sort of, like, signals ahead, and they get the guards off, and Cage, like, sneaks a wire. Like, he has, he finds the wire that the DEA agent was wearing, and he sneaks that into one of the prisoners' like, shirts. And they get on a bus, and, like, they find out just too late, because Conair is able to take off. Dave Chappelle is seemingly left behind. Like, he was too busy flirting to get back onto this plane. So, we're in Cusack's office, I guess, where he's talking with Mrs. Poe. I got really confused Uh, there's no telling on where he is at any given time except when he has to get to carson city you mean like geographically yeah maybe i missed it he was suddenly in an i guess his office because he's sitting there like it's his office so i assume that's where he is the other thing is uh, you don't know much time is really going by either they were leaving from where to go to Carson City. I don't know. I feel like it may be California. Yeah, like, it didn't seem like that long of a flight, but well, then... But also, somehow, Cameron Poe's wife and daughter get from, presumably, Alabama to, to Carson City yeah, or something, to, right? Yeah, to, I guess, Carson City. But wherever it is, it's close to Vegas, too. 
Well, why isn't Cameron Poe locked up in his own home state in the first place? Like, <laughs> why is he, like, five states away? If it's Alabama to California, like, that's, like, across the country pretty much. Like, it doesn't make sense here. But that's really what I love about this movie. This is yeah. what kind of makes it a bad movie. Because none of this stuff makes sense. But when it comes down to it, who the hell cares? It's so much fun. It's because, like, he's talking to wherever this office is. It's because Cusack's talking to Cameron Poe's wife that he realizes that he has an ally on this plane. It's sort of confirmed a little bit later when the landing gear hasn't fully come up. Cage is, like, trying to figure out where they're going, and he gets tasked by Ving Rhames to go down and figure out what's going on down there. And they figure out that Dave Chappelle had climbed into the landing gear and, like, froze to death. And so Cage writes Cusack's character's name. He's like U.S. Marshal Larkin. And he pushes him out the plane. That is amazing. We can talk, to, we can talk about that next. It's about halfway through the movie that Cusack realizes, oh, there's, like, there's, like a, there's a good guy on this plane. Like, we, we might, like, all might not be lost. But let's talk about Chappelle for a second. And sort of, like, not necessarily his death scene, but his after-death scene. Thank God that dead guard had a pen. Or else Cage was fucked. <laughs> How else was he going to tell anybody? How else was he going to deliver a message? He thank God that the, the dead guard that Dave Chappelle was wearing, uh, that the uniform he was wearing, had a pen in the pocket. That just cracked me up when I saw that. He pushes Chappelle out, basically out the landing gear hole, and the landing gear comes up. And probably the funniest scene in the movie, right? A little bit of a cage in action stretch. The car's being driven by Don S. Davis who was Scully's father on the X-Files, died in the episode Beyond the Sea, where the villain was Brad Dourif of Amos Andrew. Mike pointed out this morning that he is from Twin Peaks. He's Bobby Briggs' dad. And there's a lot of Cage Twin Peaks crossover. It's like this guy who's like tangentially affiliated with Cage up to this point. And Chappelle's body falls out of the plane, however thousands of feet up in the air it is. Like 30,000 feet? And it's and, just, and, and, it and wrecks his car. <laughs> yeah, no, the body doesn't explode, and I guess it's one of the, th- the few times that there's a little bit of CGI or a little bit of computer tweaked things. Because Mike, you talked last time about how The Rock was no CGI. This has a little bit of CGI. It's just great. What like incredibly quick thinking by Cameron Poe too. I mean, he he sees this opportunity to get a message to someone. You know, like who would have thought to like write the name right? Like here's where we're going on this guy's shirt knowing that like you know he knows like still the authorities will find this body they'll find the name they'll track it that like he's so many steps ahead like i don't know it's just very cunning on his behalf it's just cool how he's able to like instantly take this situation and like make something out of it oh so it's, it's at this point it might answer mike's geography question that they're like, how far is it to Carson City, or how far is it to wherever we need to get? They tell Cusack, like, you can get there quick enough if you have a fast car. And so he steals Malloy's sports car with a license plate ass kicker (laughs) and drives there. So, I mean, like, it's drivable distance from wherever they are to wherever they're winding up, which I guess is near Vegas, right? I think Malloy is like, he's taking the choppers, and, you know, I call them firebirds because yeah, they're salt choppers and anything, so he jumps in those and they go to track down what they think is Conair, but they remember they put the tracker in that little tour plane. So he's off doing that when Larkin, he's like on his own. So he, yeah, he drives the sports car in the other direction, the right direction. This DEA guy makes the worst decisions 
all the time. Why does that, anybody listen to him? Yeah, why is there a DEA in the first place, Mike? <laughs> <laughs> it's all bureaucracy. Part of like, like the message of these types of films, right? Like the average man has to take care of everything because the people in charge have their heads up their ass. Because we spent a lot of time talking in The Rock about how Michael Bay just hates authority, right? And we sort of get that same message here, not from Michael Bay, but just sort of like government agents are inept and sort of not necessarily corrupt, but like maybe could be corrupt. They're just, they're not good at their job. They shouldn't be trusted. Yeah, you're right. Like it's it's the average guys who have to save the day and it sort of empowers the audience, right? Yeah, and I guess like it kind of turns us against cops a little bit more. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely a thumb in the nose at the establishment. Kind of like that generation was what that generation was all about too. It was cool to be badass. But it was right before the Attitude Era of WWE, which was all about anti-heroes and stuff like that, which is just what that generation wanted. This movie was right there. I mean, the, the main hero is a convict. He's a bad guy, essentially. And speaking of that hero, speaking of being badass, like, we're on the plane and Cage kills another guy? Like, they're in the undercarriage of the plane, and Billy Bedlam is down there. I don't know if he's looking for anything in general, or just sort of, like, looking around, but he finds Cage's box of stuff, and he remembers Cage telling Malkovich to sort of get in on his good side, that he's got 15 years left, but he finds this note that says, my daddy's coming home today. He confronts Cage about it, and then attacks Cage about it, and Cage impales him. Like, he, he kills him. Like, this is, like, another guy, death by hands, like, you know, by bare hands count in this movie up to two and for his career up to four. Put the body back in the box. I knew you was a punk. And I was right. You've been playing us all along. You a free man. I said, put the bunny back in the box. Anytime someone steps to Cameron Poe in this movie, like, I'm just, I know they're going to die. I'm just waiting to see, like, <laughs> how fast he's going to kill the guy, basically. He's going to get found out, pretty much, right? Like, this guy, Billy Bedlam, has kind of been riding his ass the whole flight, <laughs> giving him strange looks and shit. And it's crazy. He almost, like, unleashes the beast at this moment. No one's looking, and he murders a guy. Why couldn't you put the bunny back in the box? What I really like about that line is you have the most ridiculous words coming out of one of the like most intensely serious faces, you know, like on screen. Like he could not have said that more seriously. No one else could have made that play any better than Nicolas Cage made that line land. It becomes a race to Lerner Airfield that they're trying to get there so that they can get out with Sandino. Cusack's trying to get there to stop it. The DEA is trying to get there after they figure out that they went the wrong way with the Firebirds. Everything is converging on this one spot. This is such a weird place, too. Did you look around and didn't notice any of those, what's in those giant piles of garbage, I guess? Well, they call it, like, the boneyard, yeah, right? it's like a junkyard, right? There's an old gas station. Well, it, like, like is an old gas station slash, like, an... air... I think it's just, like, an air... It's supposed to be, like, an airfield that's been there since, like, the 50s or something, and it's the, it's the airstrip that time forgot. That's not necessarily an old gas station, because there's still people living there like that little girl that Buscemi talks to you later like she lives in a trailer right there 
Well, it's so, like a trailer park. Like. It's like everything, because like, it's still an active airstrip, because they're not the only ones landing there. Like, there's that little, the, there's the pilot and the single seat plane landing yeah, there. It's not a commercial it's just, airstrip by any means. It's just sort of like a derelict airport. Bottom line is that it's everything that this movie needs it to be. It's this, <laughs> it's this place... <laughs> It's this place to start off this amazing half-an-hour action scene. It's a place where they can encounter a few different, like, civilians. Like, they encounter the guy landing the plane. Cage talks to the guy who's, like, hiding under his plane. Ushemi talks to the little girl. It's like this magical wonderland that sort of unites all of Con Air. It's like an oasis out there, right? (laughs) (laughs) Is this maybe the place that Elizabeth Shue was going to bring? Well, even this, like, what ends up happening here is better than what ended up happening there for those two that day. And so Cusack catches up to the plane, and everybody's there. Con Air kind of has a crash landing, so they sort of like pull up and dip over this like little plane, crash land, and get a little bit buried in sand. This is sort of the beginning of their downfall, right? Like, things had gone so smoothly for them up to this point, but like, that plane being there, it's like a little variable that they didn't account for, and it throws like a little wrench in their plans. Yeah, and this is also where they're supposed to rendezvous with the cartel guys, right? When they land, the cartel's like nowhere in sight, so Malkovich is like, you know, we held up our end of the bargain, like, what's going on? Yeah, things are starting to unthread, right? Like, they want to execute the cops, but then... Cameron Poe is like, you know, we need hostages, and everyone's sort of getting testy. What exactly are we discussing here? Poe, don't want me to off the pigs. Well, it's not difficult to surmise how Nathan here feels about killing guards, and my own proclivities are uh, well-known and uh, often lamented facts of penal lore. What I'm wondering is why you have any opinion about it at all. Cyrus, this is your barbecue, man, and it tastes good. But I was just saying to Mr dog over here that if it was my barbecue I'd wait for that old jumbo jet in the sky for us to start killing our only leverage. Shut the fuck up. Don't you want to get high and get laid and shit? Oh, fuck this. Put the gun down. Put the gun down, Nathan. Poe's right. But, like, it's at this point where everybody sort of goes off and does their own thing. Cage goes to guess just to look around. He runs into Cusack and he's still a little hesitant of Cusack. Buscemi goes to find the little girl. Sally Can't Dance goes to get dressed up in, in his dress. A lot of the other people, like Malkovich, is sort of starting to get his defensive plans in mind. Like, everybody goes their own separate way. It's weird that, like, this movie was almost like a bottle episode. You know what I mean? Like, there were all these people on this one plane, and now, all of a sudden, everybody's spread out of this entire massive, sort of magical airfield. Yeah, it almost feels wrong. Like, they stepped off the bus in speed, and the movie didn't end at that point. <laughs> like, it kept going for, like, 20 minutes. I kind of love this, though, because we get off the plane for a while, and, yeah, we get some fresh air, and Poe finally gets to meet John Cusack. And that's a great moment where they single-handedly, he, like, takes out the cartel guys. Like, he kind of comes across them by accident, and oh, yeah. they were going to double-cross everybody, and Cusack is like, freeze! And Poe takes that moment to do his round house kicks and his headbutts yeah. and his knee thrusts and yeah he's just a one man whirlwind and they kill the entire cartel except for the pilot and Sandino gets on there and they're flying away and then as well oiled of a machine that Malkovich is running like Cusack is almost one step ahead because he like knows exactly where to go lowers a crane onto Sandino's plane and like destroys it like Sandino gets off he's like hey like we were uh, we were just coming to get you and like Malkovich does Malkovich kill him or does he just like or just oh, sort yeah. of assume that like he 
shoots the jet fuel that's leaking, and we oh, get like right. uh, the enormous explosion with Nick Cage running away from it in slow motion. Oh man! The yeah. first of a few massive explosions. Cusack is almost doing some action movie stuff now too. You know, I'm not saying like he could do what Nick Cage is doing in Con Air, but I think he might be able to pull off what he did in The Rock. You know, he's kind of almost there here. They do sort of make a good mismatched pair. Like they're not as good as Cage and Connery in The Rock, but Cage and Cusack here sort of do a good job. They do a really good job a little bit later when they get to Vegas, but like it's sort of an uneasy alliance because even though they're on the same side, Cage I guess is sort of unsure of where this whole detour that the plane took puts him in terms of getting back to his daughter so he's not sure who to trust but they do sort of team up and they are both kind of like action stars when just a couple years ago i don't think you would think about that for either of these actors we should probably talk about steve buscemi as garland green with that little girl right that whole scene is creepy just a little girl there playing by herself is creepy you know i almost wondered if the Buscemi character is so bizarre. Like I was saying at the beginning, like everyone, as long as you're doing like somewhere, if you're somewhere in the zone of what Cage is up to, like you're good. But I feel like Buscemi is like too good of an actor. Like we've got all these great actors, but like he's way too good right now as like this, you know, pedophile murderous guy. Like he is just like he's out of bounds, if you ask <laughs> me if you ask me. And I almost wondered at one point, is that little girl really there? Or is he working out something in his mind? Is he talking to himself? Is this just a figment of it? is this what he sees every day taunting him, you know, like that drives him to murder. I didn't want to accept it as actually happening perhaps he might have done that because you see him wandering off by himself through this broken down barbed wire fence which is symbolic in itself and maybe that's the dreamscape he's walking into uh, you know and he's created this whole thing with there's a little girl playing in this empty pool the setup itself looked straight out of like nightmare on elm street as it was right you've got like a tea party in an empty cement pool in an abandoned yeah. trailer park next to this old like runway it was just so surreal something else i was thinking about he's such an interesting character we get introduced to all these new personalities and characters when they pick him up in carson city he's so intriguing right off the bat the way that he that he shows up on the plane all strapped in like that and his brief history that you get not only is he taken as like this most evil character on the plane and most dangerous i guess but he's also the most interesting and you don't know a lot about him you start getting little peaks with when he starts talking to cage on the plane two went down one came up one more fall well you don't have to tell me most murders are crimes of necessity rather than desire but the great ones Dahmer, gacy bundy they did it because it excited them don't you I got nothing in common with them, with you. Don't you talk to me. They were insane. Now you're talking semantics. What if I told you insane was working 50 hours a week in some office for 50 years, at the end of which they tell you to piss off, ending up in some retirement village, hoping to die before suffering the indignity of trying to make it to the toilet on time? Wouldn't you consider that to be insane? Murdering 30 people semantics or not is insane one girl i drove through three states wearing her head as a hat it's my daughter's birthday today so please feel free not to share everything with me 
this whole scene, the little girl, it just makes things so interesting because you don't know where anything's going to go at that point. You know what else I thought was kind of interesting was that you said, like, all the other guys are, like, pretty physically, like, imposing and stuff, and they are, like digging out the plane, you know, and like pulling yeah. the plane out of a ditch and then they see the cops coming and they're all arming up with the arsenal from the belly of the plane. Buscemi is just like not like that kind of guy, you know, like that's just not the type of like dangerous that he is. So maybe they used that scene to show, you know, just how dangerous he really is, right? Like these are yeah. guys with guns, but he's the guy with like the disease or whatever. As all the prisoners are digging the plane out of the sand, Cage and Cusack are sort of figuring out ways to stop the plane from taking off, right? Like, Cage takes his really sort of heavy-duty rope and, like, ties it around concrete and ties it to uh, Molloy's car. He's sort of going into, like, savior mode, like, sort of save the day, right? He's trying to do everything in his power to help Cusack keep this plane from taking off. Larkin and Poe are like, you know, what are we going to do? What are you going to do? And he's like, I'm going back on there or something. He's like, why? And he's like, because I'm going to save the fucking day, man. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's as, at this point, it's just as simple as that. You're a free man, Paul. What are you doing? I can't trade a friend's life for my own lock, and that's all. You got a friend on board. See, I knew I was right about you. I read your file. You're not such a bad guy, just always in the wrong place at the wrong time. Goodbye, Larkin. I spoke to your wife. In person? In person. And your little girl. You saw Casey. Uh-huh. If this thing goes bad, Locke, then I'm afraid my daughter won't understand. If you talk to my wife again, you tell her I love her. She's my hummingbird. Couldn't leave a fallen man behind. He'll do that for me, won't you, Larkin? Sure, I will. What are you gonna do for me? What do you think I'm gonna do? I'm gonna save the fucking day. But the plane does take off, so he he tries to save the day, and he sort of slows things down a little bit. But he ultimately can't. Like it's still going. The, all the inmates are sort of like they're celebrating like I don't know if they really have a plan because the plan was to get out with Sandino so I'm not sure what the exact plan is now but they're all sort of celebrating and they're all dancing the Sweet Home Alabama and there's like a little great line about how do you define irony define irony bunch of idiots dancing on a plane to a song made famous by a band that died in a plane crash and, like, they don't realize that, like, they're sort of, like, the, the end of their road, their imminent demise is about to happen. They're just, like, the happiest people in the world right now. They're the happiest people in the world because they found out that this airplane that was designed to transport convicts also had a sound system capable of playing <laughs> music. They know they're screwed. Like, there's really nothing they can do. So, like, why not just, like, go out in a blaze of glory sort of time? So, I don't know. That's almost what I saw. Like, I almost felt like if I was a convict in that position, like, I'd be partying and trying to get drunk or wasted one last time, try and get that one final good time in. 
they're all celebrating, but like Malkovich knows now that like they they ran into too much trouble. Oh, like we didn't even mention like they're like the the army shows up, right? They, these guys all show up to the to the airfield. Yeah. The only reason they get out of there is because like Malkovich had like this real like clever like we're gonna take out the first car, the last car, trap them in the middle kill all the guys it's between that and you know the car getting tied to the airplane and all this different stuff that malkovich is like oh we have a traitor on board things were going so well and now they're going so poorly yeah that battle in the boneyard was amazing i seen i saw this movie when it came out maybe once or twice since but forgot the majority of it and this is definitely the kind of stuff like i had missed on cable like i do not remember this boneyard battle (laughs) there's a moment when cage like i call it cage runs the gauntlet you have the army shooting one way you have the convict shooting the other way and he's like running over cop cars and sliding over stuff and explosions everywhere (laughs) i'm so happy that all this just kind of happens here at the boneyard i wrote down he's just like sprinting through the boneyard like everybody's got a machine gun armored cars there's people in like riot gear cop cars on fire and he's just there like in his normal clothes no gun just like sprinting like you said running the gauntlet you know not getting hit by any bullets like fate is on his side i noticed that this is the army now right they have tanks almost armored vehicles at least they put all their strength down in this death tunnel yeah they are not tactical fighters whatsoever they're in the desert you can't surround them (laughs) you're the army surround them very good points oh man they should have just waited for the choppers but i guess they couldn't right i guess they they're on a time crunch because they're getting that plane off yeah i don't know i mean i don't know if it's i mean like the cops are very clearly the army or whoever's not good at a job but it also maybe is a testament to how smart malkovich is right he's just like he's running shit like he's he's the man in charge he's going to make sure that whether the plan is going according to plan or not that they are in a good position and so that's when, like, when they're on the plane, he realizes there's a traitor. Like, he, it, it doesn't concern him anymore. Like, Cage is almost, like, singled out, but Babio's like, no, I did it, man, I did it. And even though Malkovich doesn't believe him, like, he doesn't even care. He just shoots Babio, probably just to mess with Cage. And he's going to kick Cage out of the plane. He's going to kill Cage. And that's when Malloy and the Firebird show up. And they start shooting at the plane. It's like Cage is only saved. I guess it's sort of a little Deus Ex Machina, right? Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's sort of the 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 results of his actions finally paying dividends that he was able to delay them at the boneyard long enough for the Firebirds to show up and force this plane into a like a little bit of an unexpected landing. Yeah, that's what I sort of took it as. His whole plan with Cusack was to just stall. Like, right. stall them as long as you can. They're giving chase, which was cool. I totally forgot that, too. I was like, oh, how did they get shot out of the sky? And then, yeah, they show back up. And I don't know if you noticed, but those guys are actually sitting in the front seats of those helicopters for, like, one or two shots. So they must have taken them up, like Cusack and the other guy. They must have taken them up for a day to get a couple. Which is awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I noticed that cage- in Firebirds, too. They're, they took Cage and they took time. Lee Jones, they must have taken him up at least once to get, like, a couple shots. Well, I mean, like, if you're in a movie where, like, it's all about planes and helicopters, like, you better get, like, a flying <laughs> helicopter. <laughs> yeah, it's it's they're, it's funny, too, because now, like, everybody's airborne, you know? Like, it's turned into an air chase. And this is when Cage has, like, his most badass moment, right? Like, he's sort of a man-possessed. Baby-O is, like, crying on the ground, and he's like, man, I'm just worried that, like, I'm just, I'm just afraid that God doesn't exist. And Cage says, I'm gonna show you God does exist. I got a bad feeling, son. I feel like maybe I'm not supposed to make it. You gonna make it? All I can think about is like, there ain't no God. 
but he don't exist. Where you going? I'm gonna show you God does exist. And he like charges the front of the plane, and an inmate we don't really know shoots him in the arm, and Cage like does not stop. Terminator persistence, and just like yeah. walks up to the guy and like knocks him out. He goes into the cockpit, and I wrote down that he sort of has his little Captain Phillip moment, where he's just like, I'm the captain now. <laughs> I'm in charge. They're like, we're gonna land in Vegas. Like, enough is enough. Like, I'm taking over from the convicts. They're no longer in charge. It's, it's perfect. Like, this is sort of, like we were saying earlier, the perfect culmination of Cage Club. So where else could this movie end other than Las Vegas? Such a perfect spot for an epic climax, you know? And when you're thinking about, like, where do you crash land a plane, the strip is like a runway, you know? It just clicks so perfectly. <laughs> um, great idea right there. And, uh, yeah, Joey, like, he turns into a Terminator. You know, his will is just, I don't know, he goes, like, Super Saiyan or something. <laughs> like, you just can't wound this guy whatsoever. Yeah, I just love that when he gets shot and he doesn't even feel it. He doesn't even know he's shot. And I doubt he knew he was shot for another 10 minutes or so. They're landing in the strip, and like they take out the Hard Rock Cafe guitar, and they're like, they're, they're like we're out of road, we're out of road. And they just sort of crash, and they crash into, not valleys, unfortunately, they crash into the sands, because the sands was actually getting demolished at that time. And so when they found that out, they're like, oh, we need to work this into the script. And so, like, they see this hotel being destroyed, and that's actually the hotel being destroyed. Like, it's sort of like real life and the movie, like, combining to just create this ultimate action sequence at the end of this movie. Oh, like when they blew up the hospital in The Dark Knight that they were going to demolish anyway. (laughs) Serendipity, man. (laughs) They've already crashed in the actual sand, so it's kind of cool that they crash in the sands again. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) They crash into the sands, and, like, it really seriously ends a 30-minute action sequence like the last like or like you know from like halfway through the, the boneyard and all that stuff to this like it hasn't let up and that's like what's great about these action movies it, it almost feels in a way like the end of furious six right like they have that yes. long that 15 mile long runway or whatever it's this crazy plane just doing crazy things for a long long time and it's it's like perfect like the, there's no way that if you like action movies you can't love this kind of sequence yeah this is why it's one of my favorite action movies that whole sequence is just fantastic I, I don't know about you guys but i've always wanted to see an airplane that size land on the las vegas strip <laughs> <laughs> you know it's like one of those moments oh yeah where's he gonna land on the strip oh of course he is and that's awesome i can't wait <laughs> to see that we have cage like skydiving onto the strip in honeymoon in vegas what like what's the next step up from a person landing on the strip just an entire plane landing on the strip what's really kind of crazy about this movie and i didn't remember this this huge action sequence ends and he gets onto the street and he's all beat up he sort of looks like mclean like john mclean from die hard and like he's you know all dirty and like cut up and he just wants to see his wife and i'm like how is there still 20 minutes left in this movie? <laughs> I remembered that, like, Malkovich and Swamp Thing and all these guys, they're escaping on a fire truck, and so, so Cage and Cusack chase after them. And, like, so you just, like, you have, like, a deep breath, like, you have an exhale, 
after this half an hour action sequence because we're getting thrown into another 15 minute long action sequence of this crazy chase through the streets of Vegas. What's amazing is how many people survived the crash of Con Air. <laughs> Even Baby O, who was shot in the gut, survived the crash. Like, they're just arresting guys left and right. That was amazing. But yeah, then it feels like the movie's over. Like, everybody's just, like, gonna start congratulating each other. No, not so fast. Those guys, like, Cyrus, Diamond Dog, Swamp Thing, like, yeah, they, like, sneak out under the airplane. Yeah. And they all survived intact, too. Like, not a bruise on anybody. And then, for some, I mean, awesome reason, they steal a fire truck and... But you can't all fit in a fire truck, and Malkovich has to, like, get on the ladder. And that's the only reason they get caught, right? Because, like, they could just be driving away in a fire truck, but Cage sees Malkovich on the ladder, and so he and Cusack hop aboard motorcycle cop. <laughs> oh, motorcycle. Like, awesome. like, they're just, and they just take off after them. Like, they, they basically, like, look at each other, like, <laughs> nod, yeah. and then just go off after they're them. They're like, we're partners now, right? You bet your ass for partners. Cage, like, jumps onto the onto the fire truck, and he's, like, doing, like, basically, like, he was doing the one-arm push-ups in Best of Times and Red Rock West. He's doing, like, one-armed pull-ups here. Like, he's just, like, so jacked and, like, showing it off. And he's he has this huge, epic fight with Cyrus. Cyrus is, like, hitting him. And then he jams, like, a pipe through Cyrus's leg. The, the truck crashes, right? And Cyrus gets electrocuted. Sort of for the second movie in a row, we have a guy's head get smushed. When, like, there's, like, this compressor. Joe, you lost me, and I watched the movie, and I'm so lost right now. Like, so much happens at the end here. It's insane. Like, And it all happens in, like, four minutes. Yeah. Like, it's all just, like, it's, like, this crazy chase, and then the chase ends, and then there's, like, a fight. And then Malkovich somehow gets... Like, I don't know how this stuff happens. It all just sort of happens. <laughs> like, I remember Cusack takes the hose and, like, puts it in the cab so he drowns Swamp Thing to make him crash. Right. Somehow Cage has Malkovich pinned to the ladder and extends the ladder so that it smashes into one of those walkways that connects oh, the casino. Oh, and he falls off onto the wires, yes. And he goes flipping off onto electrical wires, but he survives that and lands on, like, a nearby construction site, and then he's <laughs> on, like, a conveyor belt into a quarry or something. I'm like, what is that? And he your- lands perfectly every time to finally land perfectly where his head's going to get smashed by this thing. You just survived a plane crash, this chase... You've fallen all over all these things. You can't move a little bit to get out of the way from this thing squishing <laughs> your head. I mean, he's such a bad guy. Like, they can't just kill him. They gotta, like, mutilate yeah. this dude, you know? Like, he's well, deader than dead. That's also another good part, a point about this movie, is that all these bad guys get their karma and get their comeuppance, you know? They're such bad characters that they all have some kind of bad death, you know? Some kind of horrific death. A fitting death for a lot of them, too. Like, Billy Bed gets killed in a fight and he was all about like anger and bedlam and malkovich he's supposed to be this real smart conniving guy gets his head smushed that's awesome i like that a lot well i just love how this whole chase ends with like a truck full of money on fire falling from the sky in the middle of las (laughs) vegas it's just like burning money in vegas baby like you couldn't be like more on point with that imagery I feel like this is not the first time, I can't remember another time, but I feel like this is not the first time there's just been, like, money raining down in a Cage movie. 
Has this happened before? I don't know. It, for some, it's going to sound crazy, but it doesn't seem like the first time we've seen something like this in a Cage film. So we were talking in The Rock about how Michael Bay has that like circular camera movement, right, to show how great these heroes are. In this, there's a lot of like badass guys walking away from things. Like when when Malkovich blows up that plane with Sandino, they're all walking away from it, and he's just like walking in slow motion, and everybody else is sort of like panicked behind him. Like that's sort of his ultimate moment. And there's a lot of shots of Cage just sort of like walking away from things. The money truck, like it's raining money in Vegas, it's all being lit on fire, and Cage just like walking away, not a care in the world except getting back to his wife and daughter. He fishes the bunny out of the sewer grate, gives it to his daughter, and his daughter's like scared of him. He's sort of like trying to reconnect with his wife and how do I live as playing again? Like a great way to sort of bookend the movie. I'm I'm swelling up too. Like, I don't (laughs) all of a sudden guys, I don't care what you think when he sees his daughter and that look where he's like, it's okay, you know, she doesn't have to take it and and the music and the, oh god, I swear, like I got, you know, like the feeling you get, like right when you think you're about to lose it, like I got that feeling, it hit me. (laughs) Casey is sort of, which by the way, Casey is higher billed than the mom. Do you know that? Like in the credits, she receives higher billing than the mom. That's insane. I don't know how the credits are, are, are lined up, but on IMDb, she's higher than the mom. Anyway, just wanted to put that out there. So they sort of have their little happy family reunion. Cage and Cusack sort of have their, you know, friendship. Like, I almost wish, like, we were talking in The Rock about how we wish that there was a sequel to that or that Cage and Connery could have teamed up. I would love to see a Cusack, Cage, buddy cop movie, criminal or former criminal and cop having to team up to do things, like sort of like working together more closely. Cage at one point in the movie says that he only trusts two men, and by the end of the movie he's like, now I trust three. Like, we never learn who the other man is though, right? I assumed it was his dad because he says something to Cyrus where he's like, my daddy told me one time. And then Cyrus is like, you know what my dad told me? Nothing. And then Cage is like, ah, self-learned man. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, so I just assumed it was his dad. You're right, though. I would have loved to see these guys together again. We sort of get a little more action Cusack with Gross Point Blank, you know, like, and he pulls that off really well, too. That's sort of more of a comical little action movie. It's too bad that you don't get more of these guys together. Well, we're going to get a whole movie of them together in the frozen ground. Oh, but, yeah, okay. Then I stand corrected. I, I, but I don't know what that's about. I don't either, but I'm glad that they will be reunited. Cage has his happy ending with his family and with John Cusack, but the happiest ending of all is Garland Green sort of snuck away during all this, and they cut to a craps table, and then like, does the shooter feel lucky? He's like, oh, I feel real lucky. And then he just, he's just playing craps as the movie ends, like basically a free man. The most horrible, evil, like reprehensible villain in this entire movie just free to go about Vegas like you like he's just a normal guy. The guy who once confessed to wearing a girl's head as a hat across several states <laughs> is now like a free man wandering the streets of Las Vegas and, and, and like popular. Yeah, and it's like they don't notice he's missing. Like we got the head count here. Oh, we're missing the worst one. Uh, <laughs> we got all the other guys. Yeah, but we're missing the worst one. But we got all the other guys. Eh, close <laughs> enough. <laughs> That reminds me of uh, Chief Wiggum. Where's Sideshow Bob? Uh, if anyone asks, I shot him. <laughs> we also have, to sort of go along with the very weird Cage Club endings, we have, like I think for the first time, the credits are the actor name, character name, over like a silent video of them. 
Like, this is sort of like a weird, like, I guess this this feels kind of very 90s, right? Or very, like, ensemble casty. at least. We haven't had this yet, right? Yeah, this is something new for Cage Club by far. I was so glad to see it. I've seen it in a couple movies. The only one I can think of off the top of my head is Coming to America. But yeah, it's like this reprise of the whole cast or the major players. And they do it in Kill Bill Part 2, I believe, as well. And Cloud Atlas. They show. I mean, yes. Cloud Atlas is kind of the coolest one ever where they're just like, well, he was who? Yeah, where like everybody played eight people. And I loved when they do stuff like that because she kind of missed this. And it worked really well for this movie, too. And So I have some trivia about this movie. But before we get to it, is there anything else that you guys want to talk about that we didn't cover? Baby-O? What the hell is that name? <laughs> who came up with that one but if anyone noticed he also played bubba in forrest gump was also shot in the stomach what oh in <laughs> yeah. forrest gump yeah, yeah. That's right. <laughs> so Before within three years this guy was shot in the stomach twice i did not know that this was bubba but the fate of this actor in the 90s just <laughs> you know who's the guy who gets shot in the gut best well, have you seen forrest gump and con air we know that guy <laughs> <laughs> Call him up. I just wanted to reiterate that if Cusack had taken the time to look at Poe's file when he was first getting onto the airplane instead of so easily dismissing him as a nobody, much of this stuff could have probably been handled sure. a little easier than it was. But <laughs> since he didn't and it was an oversight and the government is known for making oversights, we get this awesome story that unfolds the way it does. Trivia right, time? You, is it tri- trivia time? So it was brought to my attention by the last episode's guest, Chris. Christian Larson, the director of this movie, Simon West, also directed Rick Astley's video for Never Gonna Give You Up, so that's pretty cool. This movie was nominated for two Oscars. We already talked about Best Original Song. It was also nominated for the second movie in a row for Best Sound, but it did not win once again. It was nominated for a Razzie for Worst Original Song. It won the Razzie for the worst reckless disregard for human life and public property. Is that the landing on the Vegas Strip? That's just, I think it's just the movie as a whole, you know, landing <laughs> the on the Strip, everything. So John Malkovich wasn't happy during production because apparently the script kept getting rewritten virtually every day and he had no idea how his character was going to turn out. I think he turned out pretty well, you know, he's a pretty cool, pretty smart villain that sort of has a, a really cool death scene, but I can see that being really annoying. Everyone seems really consistent character-wise so that's kind of surprising but I think where that shows is Malkovich's death where they must have kept every version of his death and turned it into one big death at the end it's like get every draft and let's find out how he dies and let's make it one giant death scene John Cusack hates this movie so much that he won't be interviewed about it really What is that about? He's got a great scene where he's yelling at the DEA guy about, like, (laughs) jurisdiction and stuff, and uh, and he's got to, like, unscrew the situation. I'm surprised he doesn't like it. If we're talking about the ending, the sight of the planes flying in low formation over the strip apparently caused a lot of people who live in Las Vegas to call the cops, Ah. because they were like, we don't know what's going on, but something is going on. There you go with practical effects, right? I mean, (laughs) nowadays they would just CGI planes flying close to the strip speaking of practical effects and a very sad little bit of trivia the credits reference in memory of phil swartz who was an effects specialist killed on set when a rigged plane fell and crushed him maybe so there's an argument for more cgi (laughs) and less practical effects so I mentioned that there was the Cajun action that Jonathan Hensley did an uncredited rewrite on the script, but another Cajun action, going back to It Could Happen to You, 
is that this movie was inspired by a newspaper article about a plane that transports convicts. So it's crazy. That's two Cage movies in the last, like, five or ten that were ripped from newspaper headlines. I love, I mean, someone saw, like, oh, like, they put prisoners on a plane instead of a bus sometimes because it's a long trip, and they got this out of it. (laughs) Incredible. (laughs) And so my last little bit of trivia is people who almost played other people. So instead of Steve Buscemi, the first choice was Tim Roth for Garland Green. I think Tim Roth probably could have done a good job. I mean, Buscemi just absolutely kills in that role. Instead of John Cusack, we almost had Robert Downey Jr., Charlie Sheen, or Matthew Broderick. I feel like Charlie Sheen doesn't fit there, but like Robert Downey or Broderick could do it. I think Broderick's probably the closest to Cusack, but again... I'm totally happy with Cusack there. Instead of Malkovich, we almost had Gary Oldman was the first choice for Cyrus the Virus. Kevin Bacon and Woody Harrelson were also considered. Or, in a really cool, would have been an amazing back-to-back cage club, Ed Harris was also considered for Cyrus the Virus. Interesting. I could have also seen Woody Harrelson as Cameron Poe at some point in this movie, too, to be honest. Well, speaking of Cameron Poe, I guess they wanted like a bigger name. Schwarzenegger, once again, feels like every time we talk about a movie, Schwarzenegger was offered the role. He was considered for the role of Cameron Poe, and so was Tom Cruise. Mm. What almost was. But I'm glad. I love the movie that we got. I wouldn't change a thing. Yeah, I also, I especially love the logo of Con Air that appears at the beginning of the film, you know, with yeah. like the screaming eagle and everything. Like, it's almost like tattoo worthy, to be honest That's with the, you. It's, it's basically, it's, and it's basically like tattooed onto the movie, right? Like, doesn't it come down like whack and then just has like the, the credit right there? I believe so. Yeah, and it's on the actual plane itself. So that's it. Any last minute things that you guys want to talk about? Thank you so much for uh, having me. Well, thank you for being here. And if you want to come back, we can we can show you the list. But we always love having re- Pete Guest to see how Cage sort of evolves in his career. Mike Manns, anything to say? Any last any last words? Uh, no, I'm, I'm good. Uh, this has been good. So this was Con Air. You can go to cageclub.me for all things Cage Club. You can read our reviews for every movie, catch up on past podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter. You can follow and subscribe or rate and review and everything on iTunes. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Mike Milnes. And we'll see you next time on Cage Club. How do I get through one night without you? If I had to live without you, what kind of life?